morning. Hopefully there are no blues to be taken away. Greg, you're wearing your San Diego Padres hat today. You betcha, buddy. I suspect, does it have anything to do with a surprise visit you had yesterday on your birthday? Absolutely. Actually, I've been sporting this since last year. Scott brought this for me from San Diego. I should be wearing my Padres t-shirt, but I think he uh, bought me last year's size. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get the upgrade? Didn't get the upgraded (laughs) size, so... (laughs) I like that. that. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, so I guess we will have to uh, <coughs> endeavor to uh, fit into that shirt by the end of the summer. How's that? That uh, sounds like a plan, although usually I find that it's uh, at least what happens with me is I end up losing a little bit of weight before summer, and then summer happens, and it comes it goes back. the other way. Yeah, see, I'm the other way. I, I tend to shed a few over the summer. So Oh, good for you. Yes. All the yes, yard yes. work and stuff, maybe? That's right. You got it. Oh, Sorry. Watering the flowers at uh, 9 o'clock last night. There's nothing more relaxing. Honest to goodness. Yeah? Watering yeah. the plants at night? Yes, it's so nice. It, what a perfect day it was yesterday. The heat and the sunshine and... and this morning when you walked in, I don't know if you could notice the smell. It just, it finally smelt like spring. You know, the dust has started to settle down somewhat. And now with the trees in bloom, it, it it's starting to feel like uh, pre-summer. Yeah. Because to, to call it spring when it's 30 degrees outside, I don't think is accurate. Well, this is uh, one of my favorite times of year because all the lilacs are suddenly in bloom just out of nowhere too it seems like what that tree is pink yes notice that in my neighborhood as well doesn't it like bother your allergies this time of year uh, a little bit i'm a little bit more stuffed up i've just noticed in the last 48 hours i'm, I'm far more stuffed up i've having to take two maybe three antihistamine pills but it's okay especially if i walk by if i'm out for a walk and i happen to walk by a lilac tree i'll stop <laughs> actually <laughs> caught one of my buddies by surprise last year it was our former well still chorus colleague but he's now in guelph matt cardi yes we were walking to the grove or i don't know where and i stopped and just stuck my nose in this lilac tree and he says brett mcgarry you continue to surprise me every day. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to stop and literally smell, yeah, smell the flowers. That's right. Hey, speaking of stumbling upon things in nature, have you seen this video of these two lynx going nose to nose? If I hadn't seen the video, I wouldn't have believed that was the sound that that animal produces. Now I see your finger on the mouse there. Are you going to click play on this? I have it ready to go. Okay, let's do it. Kind of reminds me of those screaming goats. It does somewhat. <laughs> now, by now, you may have heard this or seen it yourself. If you have not, seek out the video. Two things that are absolutely unreal <laughs> is the fact that humans actually caught this activity on video. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what kind of competition they're in. They're They're fighting over a girl. Yeah, well. Of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Because boys. (laughs) And I can't believe the size of the rear paw of these animals. Like, they like have a size 12. Yeah, it's weird. Their back paws are completely different shape than their front paws. And if you go to the story on Global News, 
That's Edward Trist. Uh, he and his girlfriend, Nicole Lewis, and uh, their daughter were uh, heading down a logging road to go fishing near Avery Lake, Ontario, which is east of Kenora, when they spotted these links, not 20 feet from their car. But on that global news story, uh, the headline, links caught on video wailing at each other in Ontario. There's another video of a lynx climbing a tree trying to get a squirrel. This is near Drayton Valley in Alberta. And uh, the, you you suddenly understand why the paws are shaped the way they are, because it helps them climb trees like a monkey. To go vertical. Yeah. And in this thing, <laughs> this lynx was climbing the skinniest tree. It was kind of wobbling back and forth, and then it jumped to the other tree to try to grab the squirrel, who immediately fled. Uh, I don't. It would seem like a hopeless exercise to begin with, but the lynx was hungry, and then it just casually climbed down the tree, no problem. He hadn't seen the social media that made him realize that him catching a squirrel was not going to happen, but yeah. now he knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's just incredible. It's incredible footage, and when I see the lynx as well, I can't help but think, that looks like the the what the werewolf thing they did in Michael Jackson's Thriller. I never thought he looked like a werewolf. He always looked more like a were-cat, right? <laughs> that's fair. I think that's a very fair observation on your part. Anyway, you'll want to see this. Hearing it is only part of it because it, it does sound like those goats or kids screaming at each other or maybe some other sort of activity in your mind, depending on where you like to go with that stuff. You need to see this video, so go to uh, globalnews.ca, and if it doesn't come up right away, just search links, and you will find it. 611 on 680 CJOB. Jam-packed show today coming up after the 8 o'clock news. We will speak with Mark Chipman, chairman of True North Sports and Entertainment, and ask the question, what is next for the Winnipeg Jets. And I'm, I'm excited to ask him, you know, what was your reaction when you saw the crowds for the street parties with True North Square not far away? I right. mean, that's part of what that was designed for. Do you know what the capacity is for that we had, sort of plaza? Yeah, we had Brent Bellamy on to discuss that. It's kind of a flexible capacity. I want to say he said upwards of three to 4,000 people. That sounds about right. And then that it's designed sort of to f be able to filter people onto Carlton Street and kind of make that all some continuity there. So maybe we can discuss that with Mark Chipman when we visit with him just after 8 o'clock today. After 9 o'clock, we're going to talk to the folks from Motorcycle Ride for Dad. Greg and I are going to be there this Saturday when all those thousands of bikes roll out from Polo Park. Last year, It was uh, I was walking to work. I, when I worked, because uh, I worked those all those Saturday shifts, and uh, <laughs> I forgot that the ride for Dad was happening. So I'm coming up Tilehurst from the south, um, as I had just crossed the river, and I heard the rumbling, and I thought, "Oh my God, the bikes!" So I ran to the street, <laughs> and sure enough, just as I got to Portage, the first bike started to roll out, and then there was, it just went on for a half hour. That long. Yeah, probably. I I, I, stay, I I stayed for about ten minutes to just watch some of it, and then I figured out, okay, I got to get to work, so I need to, I got to get across the street somewhere. So I found a safe spot to you do improvise, so. You improvised, did you? I did improvise, but yeah, it's just incredible. They filled up the the whole front side of the parking lot, uh, from the I guess the bus loop. Right to Earl's, just full of bikes. Absolutely incredible sight. Looking forward to that on Saturday. Can you imagine uh, being a parent and having two sons? 
I can relate to that. But how about both sons contracting Lyme disease? Oh, that's awful. We've spoken to people on this radio station before with Lyme disease, and it is not, it's not pleasant. We're going to speak with Lisa Ali. She's in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and she's going to tell us about an all-natural tick spray that she developed because both her sons developed a Lyme disease. Uh, her story is uh, shocking and inspiring at the same time, so looking forward to visiting with Lisa just after 7 o'clock. 18, 19, 20 might be the time. A lot of kids are thinking about moving out of the house. At least that's the way it was when I was younger. Today we're having coffee talking about this story out of New York. A 30-year-old man living in his parents' home in New York State has been ordered to leave after a state I can't believe it got this far. A state Supreme Court judge granted an eviction order by his parents. Representing himself, Michael Rotondo made his case to state Supreme Court Justice Donald Greenwood while mom and dad looked on. Uh, I'm not a burden to them in the home. They don't uh, provide laundry or food. Despite getting five written notices from his parents dating back to February, Rotundo insists he should have been given six months notice to move out. I, I just wanted you know, a reasonable amount of time to vacate with consideration the fact that I was not really prepared to support myself at the time where I was served these notices. He says he has a job, but wouldn't answer any questions about the line of work he's in. During the proceeding, the judge applauded Rotundo's legal research, but presented him with a similar case, which proves he's not eligible for a required six months notice to leave. Now, granting the, uh, granting the uh, eviction, I think the notice is sufficient. A ruling Rotundo called outrageous. I don't see why the judge wants to throw people out on the street. Rotundo's parents and their attorney had no comment leaving court, but we did get some insight into the dynamic under their roof. Well, we just, we don't talk, we see each other's way. There's no, uh, there's been no instances of anything. We so, just don't communicate. We just don't communicate. Despite today's outcome, Rotundo says his fight isn't over yet. I mean, I don't, I'm seeking appeal, so are we closed? Move to close. What a geek. He's seeking an appeal? Yeah. Take, just take a hike, man. Yeah. It's over. We posted it on our Facebook page, the CJOB Facebook page. You can weigh in there. You can also text us, 204-780-6868. Wow. What do you think about this? When do you kick your your kids out of the house? And Kelly Moore, why don't we start with you? Did it come to the point where you had to give them the old heave ho? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't wait to get out. No, we had a deal with our girls is, uh, you know, if they if they went to school, then uh, they didn't pay rent. If they did stay and work, they paid rent, uh, which we put into a savings account for them for when they left. And then they had money that they uh, weren't counting on. So uh, that was, you know, and, and just be respectful of the household rules and that sort of thing. I'm trying to remember our oldest daughter probably escaped when she was <laughs> fled the premises, nineteen or twenty. Okay, uh, the youngest one, she she left for Banff barely before the ink had dried on her diploma. So wow, yeah, yeah. and and it it wasn't that bad of a place. At least I didn't think it was that bad of a place to live. But it was kind of interesting. Once they got out on their own, they'd come home and they would do uh, the laundry at home. And back then I was making uh, summer wines and that. And all of a sudden, you know, we had to start investigating or examining the laundry basket. 
uh, because there'd On the be, way out? Because <laughs> there'd be a couple of bottles of no. green apple wine. And, uh, nice. They I, were I, shoplifting. I remember one time they said, hey, mom and dad, uh, we're going to this pool party. Can we have a couple of steaks out of the freezer? I says, well, sorry, all I've got is T-bone and ribeye. And I hear this, oh, dad says all they have is T-bone and ribeye. And the boyfriend goes, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> is it an overgeneralization, though, to suggest that uh, women in general Move, want to move out sooner than, than I don't guys? think so. I, think I so. was thinking about that this morning, Jeff. I, I think it's more of a guy thing hanging around, isn't it? I don't think it's either. I, I, I do think that younger children want to flee far quicker than the older children do. That's just the nature of being the older and younger sibling. But that's for another day. Uh, I remember the first day of grade 12, I came home from school. We're having dinner. My dad's like, how was school? I was like, yeah, it was fine. He's like, do you, what are you going to do after school? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, you've got one year from today to decide because <laughs> this date next year, you don't live here anymore. So that gave me something. To, he he would not. I was you a, got served your notice. Yeah, it was an empty thread. He just wanted me to think about the future. And but I was I was thrilled to leave after right after high school and get out there and live on my own. And I've been doing it ever since. How how long after that conversation was it that you left? Well, that was the first day of grade 12, so I left. Oh, the first day of grade yeah. 12? Wow. Jeez. I thought it was notice. like the last day of grade 12 or something similar. Yeah. More and more. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, but no, just to, to clarify, Greg, what I was suggesting was women want to get out faster than guys. I was Not, agreeing. Yeah. Totally. Uh, but uh, in my case, I regret how long I stayed because I had a similar agreement with my parents if I stayed and worked, had to pay rent, and if I went back to school, then there would be no rent. And when I was about 22, I had a, and I had a really good full, full-time, well-paying job to like where in 2004 when I left, I was making more there than I was here last year. It was mm-hmm. a, so it was hard to leave, but I didn't like the job, and I wanted to go back to school. And I went back to school, and I stayed because they offered me a, a no-rent situation, uh, but because uh, it was 26 when I got out of school, and then I got a job in radio right out of school, but it was part-time, a couple of shifts. So I couldn't afford to move out. So by the time I could afford to move out, I was 28, and I just feel like I kind of... I, I, I sort of missed my opportunity to learn at a young age the value of independence to the point where still at age 40, I'm indecisive on all kinds of things because <laughs> I relied on my parents for too long. On um, Your Own at 19 is a blast because I, I remember... Sitting on High my five to that. Sitting on my couch, <laughs> thinking I can eat whatever I want for supper. <laughs> I'm going to eat just a big bag of gummy worms. I need a one pound tub of those as a meal, and then for lunch the next day I need an entire loaf of French bread with some cheese. Oh, don't let your kids leave. <laughs> this is what they're going to do. <laughs> this is a true story. When I moved to Kamloops, I was barely 19 years old for my first job. My first shopping thing, I bought about <laughs> 10 frozen dinners and 10 cans of clam chowder. And the, and the checkout yeah. clerk goes, bachelor, and, and of course, naive me, how did you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> TFJ, uh, what do you want to say about this? Well, I, I, was, I was fortunate because with my parents, there was never any pressure in terms of, uh, you know, you have to move out right away. And that I think that seems to be more of the trend nowadays, especially with the cost of university and the yeah. cost of college out there. And here's the thing. This 30-year-old guy here, um, you know what? You're, you're bump on a log essentially there. I mean, you, there's a lot of people who have no issue if the kids stay home, but if you contribute, if you're at school, they won't charge rent. Every single person I know of who's in their early 20s still at home with mom and dad. That's the deal, they're right? They're either contributing or they're in school. They're doing something. But if you're, you know, if your excuse is, well, you know, they don't give me any food and blah, blah, blah. Sorry. 
Go out there and get a real Why job. Why would he want to live in a home where they don't want him? Like, what a no, miserable existence. I don't understand I, that I at all. I think he's probably a pretty miserable guy overall. <laughs> if you're prepared to go to court with your parents over this sort of thing. Jerry, what do you think? Uh, well, when I came home from graduating college, my mom said, I'm moving to Toronto. You better find a place to live. So that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty explicit. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I was 21 when I moved out. <laughs> Just got a text here from Sarah. She says, I moved out when I was 17. My younger sister was 18 and my baby brother, well, he was 22, <laughs> right? Nah. So I don't know. Is it a gender thing? Do you think, like, I I think you're right. I think, uh, don't like to generalize, but in my experience, it seems as though women are quicker to kind of get out on their own. And, you know, TFJ brought up a really good point because, uh, and I know Jeff would say, oh, that was eons ago. But back in my day, like when I was 18 or 19 years old, it wasn't that difficult financially right. to, to get started. Now, I mean, I Well, have, there was a lot of economic boom after the American Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was going for it. Uh, but nowadays, it would be frightening. I mean, A, you know, never mind just food and, and, and that sort of thing, but try to find a place to live. That you can yeah. afford. Even here in Winnipeg, I mean, we're lucky because housing prices here are decent. But when you're in a place like Vancouver or Toronto. Or New York. Where, exactly. I mean, but how many of these major cities where it's so prohibitively, I mean, we all talk about, you know, oh, the kids these days living with their parents. And yeah, how in the what world. What choice do they have? How in the world are you supposed to buy any property or find somewhere affordable when the average price of a detached house is over a million dollars in some of these places? Well, How does that they don't work? Start well, you, with a detached house. I've rented a room from a lady for 180 bucks a month. You you well, start yeah. you start at the bottom, right? And exactly. Sometimes that means you got to move to. If you're in BC, you got to move to Salmon Arm. If you live in Manitoba, maybe you've got to move to Brandon or Portage La Prairie. Sure, and yeah. you can't afford to live in Salmon Arm. I can tell well, you. Well, not anymore. You can't. But once upon a time, uh, uh, that's where you went mm -hmm. in order to cut your teeth, either in terms of your career and or getting into real estate. And you know what? Uh, sorry, there are sacrifices sure, that, you have to, yeah. that you have to make at times. 30 seconds, how long before? I mean, your kids are 11? Uh, yeah, they'll be 12 in July, and they're already talking about moving out, so I'm doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you think. Text us, 204-780-6868. I know Jeff Courier is going to do more on this after 10 o'clock here on CJOB. You can also weigh in on Facebook. We posted the article there, the Global News article, where you can read about it, you can watch Watch the video and see the person I referred to as a geek. It's Mackling and McGarry. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and Behind the Glass, Jerry. Lyme disease is something I think most people are aware of. I know as a parent, I'm sort of concerned about it. Mm -hmm. uh, wood ticks and deer ticks and the different ticks out there. How do you spot them? How do you get rid of them? The season seems to be growing, and maybe there is no season. Maybe they are around all the time. Let's talk about some of the myths about Lyme disease and speak with a woman who had not one but two sons who contracted Lyme disease, and she's created an all-natural tick spray that's currently being tested by scientists at Acadia University. Lisa Ali is the inventor of Atlantic, and she joins us live now on 680 CGOB. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. So the name <clears throat> Atlantic... You know, you're from Atlantic Canada. You've combined, you've put the word tick in there. Very clever. Uh, but you were driven to this 
because of of what happened with both of your sons. So why don't you first tell us what happened back in 2016? Sure. Both, uh, well, first started with my oldest, started getting uh, ankle swelling periodically and knee swelling. And I took them in and, and it, to the to the outpatients, and they just said, well, kids' knees swell. Kids, maybe they twisted it. Maybe it's growing pains. And then it got to the point where uh, my oldest couldn't walk, and we had to literally carry him in and uh, still got sent home saying, oh, maybe it's rheumatoid rheumatoid arthritis. And anyway, long story short, we did end up getting both of them tested because my youngest went through the similar, similar swelling and pain, and uh, they both had Lyme disease. And we didn't even know they were bitten by a tick. We, we never saw a tick on them. I mean, they're so tiny, and and you try to do your due diligence when you're when your kids are out in the woods, but it's not even out yeah. in the woods anymore, right? Like, it it doesn't no. feel as though the ticks' domain has changed, or have we just become more aware of where they live? I think they're just multiplying like crazy, and and as a result, plus I don't know about your area, but we have a lot of deer and a lot of. Uh, small rodents um, and the deer are getting more plentiful and, and they're just dropping off the birds, rodents, the deer, and they lay 1,500 to 3,000 babies at a time. So their, their populations increased and I guess their uh, territories expanded as well. So how are your boys doing today? Um, my oldest uh, still gets flare-ups, not as bad because we kind of manage it through his diet because if you don't get... If you don't, uh, if you're not lucky and you get the bullseye, because only a certain small percentage of people get the bullseye. What's the bullseye, you, you Lisa? Even, Sorry to interrupt you, but what's the, the bullseye? That's when the tick bites you, and you get what they call a bullseye rash. It can either be a red round rash or literally look like uh, an outlined bullseye, and that's a sure sign that I've been bitten by a tick, and uh, and it's carrying most likely Lyme. So. The thing is, though, only a small percentage of people will get that. And a lot of times, because ticks can be the size of poppy seeds, you won't even know you've been bitten. And, uh, and that's the danger right there. So it's, it's very difficult to diagnose because there's so many symptoms. There's, there's uh, well, my boys had Lyme arthritis, I'll call it. And then there can be Lyme dementia, which kind of masks itself as Alzheimer's or dementia or schizophrenia. Then there's the, the traditional flu-like symptoms. All these things can be mistaken for other ailments. Our guest this morning is Lisa Ali. She joins us live from Nova Scotia. She is the inventor of something called Atlantic, and uh, she created it's it's an all-natural tick spray, which she was compelled to look into and create after both of her sons contracted Lyme disease in 2016. So, Lisa, what is Atlantic? Uh, Atlantic, well, like you said, it's an all-natural tick spray, and uh, it's created with four simple ingredients, but it's the formula that's important. And basically why I did it was because I didn't want to put DEET on my kids. Uh, there's nothing wrong with for people who want to do that, because I truly believe that whatever you feel comfortable with to protect yourself, that's what you should use. But I personally didn't want to do that. And I also, while there's a lot of tick sprays on the market, there was nothing that had actually been scientifically studied the formula that had been scientifically studied. So I really, I, I had to feel comfortable putting something on my boys that I knew was going to work. So that's why I just delved in and started um, doing some research and, and reading other uh, studies that had been done on essential oils and came up with this formula. And then I went to, um, I got hooked up with Acadia 
And with their scientists, we've uh, done efficacy studies, and which have turned out really good. And so our first round is finished. And then we've done the registration process. We started the registration process, I should say. And uh, while that's going on, we're also doing another round of studies because we want to, uh, we just studied on deer ticks, which are the black-legged ticks, the bad ones. But there's other bad ones out there too. So we want to cover more ticks and we also want to study it on mosquitoes, etc. Were you surprised or are you surprised, Lisa, at the hoops that you needed to go through to get a, you know, a product that's natural, get it registered as a, a product to be used in this fashion? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I truly am. I, I understand that. I, I do believe it should be pro- proven for efficacy. I get that because anything on the Canadian market, it's, it's nice to feel confidence in. But all the other stuff for example, having to prove it's not toxic to your skin, even though there's cosmetic products that are already approved that have the same ingredients in them. And and currently right now, I'm able to sell in uh, certain states in the U.S. because, and I could start selling it tomorrow. So I'm going to have to start looking into that now while I'm waiting for the registration to go through, mainly because I can't just sit and uh, and and wait and not have any income coming in. So it's it's really too bad that we're, that I'm going to have to wait two or three years for that registration process to go through. Lisa, where can, is there somewhere online where our listeners can learn more about Atlantic? Absolutely. They can check out Atlantic.ca. So that's spelled A-T-L-A-N-T-I-C-K.ca. And our website has all kinds of information on the ingredients that we use and, and the scientific studies that have been done, et cetera. All right. Lisa Ali, thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB, coming to us live from Nova Scotia, hence the name Atlantic, an all-natural tick spray, which she created after her sons, both in 2016, contracted Lyme disease. And all the best to your boys as well, Lisa. Thank you for this. Contract negotiations have resumed between WestJet and its pilots, but neither side would say if progress has been made. The pilots were legally able to launch a strike last Saturday, but they've committed to not disrupt passenger travel plans over the Victoria long weekend as a goodwill gesture, and they held true to that, Brett. And the union has not issued a replacement date for a possible strike while talks continue. If they do go on strike, at least one aviation expert believes it could hurt the economy. His name is Rick Erickson. He is an independent aviation analyst, and he joins us now from Calgary on 680 CJOB. Uh, good morning, Rick. Uh, back in 1996, I rode or took WestJet for the first time in their first week or so of operations, and I have to say they've been in the good books of Canadian travelers ever since. What kind of damage would a strike cause to their brand? Uh, unusual for WestJet to even be talking in terms of unions. Uh, remember, the little startup that could could and did and grew and grew and developed a number of layers of complexity. And when uh, we've seen this done with almost any other large carrier, unions become a part of it. Even Southwest, the real darling of the low-cost carriers in the U.S., uh, the one that WestJet's modeled themselves off of, they are unionized as well. In the case of WestJet, uh, we have only the pilots are unionized right, as of right now, although a number of other workforces within the airline are looking at it, looking at it very closely, in fact. The pilots could have gone on strike this last Saturday. Uh, both sides uh, seem to have come to some kind of an agreement that if, in fact, the pilots were going to go on strike, 
there wouldn't be a strike over the weekend. So Tuesday being the first day uh, after the weekend is you know one that either could or could not have been a strike day. As it stands right now at the moment, no strike. And that means that they're continuing to talk and no news remains good news. Both, uh, both sides, the management and the pilot, said they would not negotiate in public. I think that's a very uh, sound way of, uh, of addressing this. They're still behind closed doors. I imagine they're still talking. And as of yet, no strike. Now, Rick, uh, you mentioned unions and how it's, it, it does sound weird to mention the words WestJet and union in the same sentence. I thought WestJet was renowned for having happy and thus productive employees. So what's going on here? A good question. Uh, there is, uh, you know, internal mechanisms. There are uh, a, a couple of layers of the ability of management and workers to speak, to talk to each other, and to basically re- resolve issues uh, without having to have gone the unionization process. I'm not entirely certain how or why uh, the uh, p- the current pilot union is U.S.-based. Very, very strong uh, group, very experienced in terms of uh, these kinds of negotiations and the like. And somehow they made inroads in there. Unions, of course, like having union fees. Uh, unions, uh, you know, like to like to suggest that they look after workers better than perhaps workers can look after themselves. I'm not sure how it came to be. Nonetheless, it is, and it has been. It's it started with the pilots. Uh, let's not forget, too, uh, we've seen, you know, we've had unions and airlines in this country before. We've had unions go on strike, and airlines, you know, manage to scrimp along with management. But you can't do that with the pilots. There's just not enough management pilots uh, who are not members of the union to fly the airline. So pilots go on strike at almost any airline worldwide, airline stops. Rick Erickson joins us now. He's an aviation consultant. And Rick, never mind the movement of people, and we know the effect that that can have on the economy, but cargo in our day and age where the world is sort of a shrinking place, right? You can have manufacturing facilities. We have a Boeing manufacturing facility here in Winnipeg that works in concert with what's happening in Everett, Washington. That's just one example about getting product from point A to point V, point A to point B in a very efficient fashion and in sort of a just-in-time production schedule. Absolutely. That's a fabulous point. You know, WestJet moves uh, 70,000 people per day on roughly 700-plus flights, but cargo is a very crucial component uh, uh, that relies on on the air mode. I mean, everybody's just-in-time. You know, your, 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 your product is created at the end of the day, uh, end of the week, certainly, and you want it to get to wherever it goes to as soon as you can so you can get paid for it. And uh, if you're used to having your cargo coming, you know, going out to the airport 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon for the 7 o'clock flight, and there's no 7 o'clock flight, that just backs up the whole just-in-time system, and that is a huge, huge problem uh, for the uh, uh, for industry as a whole. WestJet is not as evolved on the cargo front uh, as their, their counterparts here in Canada is, mainly because they don't have very much in the way of wide-bodied equipment. <clears throat> With wide-bodied equipment, you can use you know, unit load devices so these can get packed at the factory, just go out to the airport, get them put on the airplane, and away they go. But uh, WestJet is 
has ordered 787s. Uh, those are a wide-bodied airplane. They'll be very air cargo capable. And I'm thinking WestJet will jump a lot more into the cargo game in the future, more so than they are now. But yeah, for some of the smaller guys, you know, the, the, the things that can get hand-bombed onto an airplane, prescriptions, uh, eyeglasses, I mean, these kinds of high-value small packages, uh, WestJet is involved with that, perishables as well. And you folks in Winnipeg are a very major center for, you know, a city the size of Winnipeg. You've got a very robust air cargo business there. And I'm sure there's a number of uh, shippers and freight forwarders and like that are quite concerned about uh, any strike potential. Just to pause the conversation for a moment here. After Global News at 8 o'clock, Mark Chipman, chairman of True North Sports and Entertainment, joins us on CJOB. But right now we're talking about a potential WestJet strike with independent aviation analyst Rick Erickson based out of Calgary. And Rick, what are some of the issues on the table that are pushing the pilots to this brink well that 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 is a very another one of your good questions we don't know the issues around unions are always involving compensation work conditions job security these are the three main big points uh, that that uh, that unions bring to bear in negotiations honestly nothing has been said in public yet so uh, is it a compensation issue are they making less money than their counterparts at Air Canada probably one of the ways WestJet's uh, done that in the past to, to kind of top up is their uh, stock options. And, of course, they do have a profit share. Do they make the same as Air Canada? Hard to say. Uh, again, it's not, not, not you know, wide public knowledge. I think work conditions are probably creeping into this. Uh, you know, pilots finding themselves stuck out on the ed- ed- edges of the uh, network and then having to lay over in and some you know little centers that they're probably less enthused about for a day or two before they go back to work again that could be an issue job security i think is a big one uh job security is uh uh you know as as we do know westjet is starting an ultra low cost carrier they're going to call themselves uh, swoop uh it's an in-house airline and they have been going out and hiring some pilots who are not part of the westjet family and i think that's a big sticking point so take your pick. Uh, any one of those three key areas is what's, where the negotiations are probably revolving around, and there's probably one or two of them that are really sticky points. Do you think that we're going to see the pilots go on strike? My sense is no. I think the, the WestJet management, the last thing they want is to have this um, because they're starting up so many new things right now. That, uh, that, that swoop airline I, I talk about, the 787, uh, you know, those aircraft will be coming early into next year. It'll be a major international operation uh, with that fleet. Uh, they've got a, another uh, small regional carrier with only, you know, with aircraft that only have 35 seats. Uh, they're trying to do, trying to get that up and running over this next month or so. So an awful lot on their plate, and I don't think, I think a disruption, a, a service disruption would be a massive problem for them. So I think the management is really, really keen not to do this. I think, too, uh, even although these you know, pilots are unionized, I think they're still part of that you know, WestJet culture that really gets ingrained into, into, the, uh, into the, you know, the, the whole operation on the, on the part of the workers. I think there's some of that out there as, as well, too, and I think some of the pilots would be uncomfortable uh, you know, having, having their customers you know, have severe problems travel-wise in this country because they've gone on strike. So I think uh, I think we're going to see a resolution of this and probably some announcement over the next two, three days. Rick, uh, just real quick here. Did anybody 22 years ago when this thing got off the ground imagine that WestJet could have the success it's had? 
I can recall Clive Beto, who is one of the founders of WestJet, say publicly 20-odd years ago that WestJet will never fly east of the Manitoba border. <laughs> I remember that, too. Well, they're flying to Paris. I mean, how much further east of the Manitoba border can you get? And although, although they don't fly much further uh, west than Hawaii, uh, I do think Asia's out there as well, too, and I think a, a lot more destinations in, uh, in Europe. And they, do, they just blanket the Caribbean and Mexico into Central America. Who, who could have foreseen any of that? None of us. And uh, it's a spectacular success story any way you look at it. The impact from WestJet is in the, you know, in the billions of dollars uh, within the Canadian economy, and uh, I think because of that, the federal government is really a stakeholder in this potential strike as well too, because of just the overall negative drain that would be on the whole Canadian economy if WestJet were to stop to, to stop operations. There is simply not enough additional capacity in this country uh, to fill in. Even if every all the small little players got out and got flying, there's no way they could uh, cover the 70,000 passengers a day that WestJet carries. So the federal government is quite concerned about this, and I don't doubt they're watching these uh, negotiations closely. And who knows, maybe they are a slight part of the negotiation process as well, too. Well, Rick, uh, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much uh, for giving us the access this morning. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Rick Erickson, independent aviation analyst, joining us today from Calgary on 680 CJOB on the subject of a potential WestJet pilot strike and the question of the day at CJOB.com. Would a WestJet pilot strike affect you? Your choices are yes, it would interfere with business. Yes, it would change vacation plans or simply no. Question of the day for Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. Get two, qu- get two quotes before you call them. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness, 204-832-6243. Yesterday, the Winnipeg Jets uh, cleaned out their lockers. They faced the media for the final time this season. And we want to know what's next for the Winnipeg Jets. And right now, we welcome to 680 CJOB Live this morning, Mark Chipman, Chairman of True North Sports and Entertainment. Mr. Chipman, good morning to you, sir. Morning, guys. Mark, it's been said, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Are you buying that T-shirt quite yet? No, not quite yet, guys. Uh, it's uh, it, it's still stinging, and uh, I imagine it will for a while. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we're very grateful that we got to go as far as we did, but uh, the further you go, um, you know, the more it stings when, when, uh, when it ends. And uh, so... Um, you know, we're, we'll dust ourselves off here. And, uh, I mean, much of the work for next year has already long since begun. Our, our amateur draft group, uh, was, you know, was in town, uh, all of last week and they're all already getting ready for, for the draft. And, and, uh, there's lots of, this is our busiest time of year. It really is from both a business and a hockey perspective. So there's lots of work to be done and hopefully that'll, uh, you know, take our minds off the fact that uh, the season ended so abruptly. Pardon my manners, Mark. Congratulations on the extreme success of the hockey club this year. And uh, I know that the city was obviously captivated, the province and the countries. The profile of this franchise, uh, not only in this market, but around the league, has it risen based on playoff success and, and what folks saw around the world on television with the fan engagement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what's 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 been noticed 
the most uh, is just that, is, is how passionate our community uh, and our fans are for uh, for the game and for our team. I, I mean, you know, um, the team did well this year. There, there's no question about it, and, and uh, that, that would have perhaps uh, uh, caused people to uh, to take notice and... Um, you know, I, 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 it's been, it's kind of been a slow, steady build for us. So, um, it, it wasn't something that was entirely unexpected from our perspective that we would, you know, start to make some steps forward. But I think what, what I keep hearing about, and it, it, you know, again, this morning I wake up and the, the number of texts and emails that I get from people, from, from friends of mine that are, you know, no longer living here or, uh, it, the theme has been absolutely the same is that how um you know proud people are to uh to call winnipeg home and you know to have been able to be uh you know walking maybe a little bit more upright uh wherever they are um over the or have been over the past uh five and a half weeks mark when you saw how successful the whiteout street parties were does that excite you for when true north square is ready to go with that plaza yeah, for sure. I mean, the plaza was very much uh, the idea uh, of it was certainly, um, you know, it it, it had um, that type of event in mind, and it, uh, it it's perfectly suited for for hosting that kind of event. And um, though I have to tell you, when we when we designed it, no one was contemplating twenty thousand plus people <laughs> uh, coming downtown, and and. Uh, I think to me that's that's going to be the memory, um, you know, above and uh, or in addition to you know the the wonderful experience of just being around our team all year. But the um, I think that what was most gratifying to us as an organization is that 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 event, uh, both the, the you know the viewing parties when we we're on the road and the and the outdoor uh, event, uh, the street party, just allowed a whole bunch more people access to what was going on with our team. And, um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, NHL hockey is, is not an inexpensive uh, pastime for people. It's, it's, uh, it's remarkable, um, you know, it, that, um, you know, the, the, what it's become in that respect. So to be able to provide access to so many more fans, um, to get a real tangible sort of experience around the game itself was really, really gratifying. You mentioned accessibility and the, and the money involved, Mark. Uh, in 2011, when the Jets came back to Winnipeg, I don't need to tell you, the salary cap was just over $64 million, $64.3 million. This year, it hasn't been set yet, but it could be as high as $82 million. Uh, does that make you nervous in any way? And, and how, how do you handle the increase in salaries? Is, is there a direct correlation to revenue for you to those increases in, in salary cap? Uh, well, you know, interesting you bring that up. Like, uh, we're just going through our budgeting process right now for next year. And, and when, in, in 2011, our, our payroll was about $55 million, uh, and the dollar was even that year when we bought the team. Um, in Canadian dollars, we'll be almost twice that uh, going into next year. Um, we'll be well over 100 in Canadian. and uh, But fortunately, and... Uh, it's important people understand this. The, the, the collective bargaining agreement that we operate under um, has a, a built-in mechanism for a market like ours that 
through uh, cost redistribution really offsets a great deal of that foreign ex- exchange risk. And uh, a lot of our revenues, frankly, come in U.S. dollars, which I don't think people understand. Um, you know, all of the NHL uh, enterprise revenues from outdoor games and all-star games and and uh, and U.S. television come in U.S. dollars. So there's there are some some very important ways to that or, or mechanisms that offset the um, the foreign exchange risk we deal with. So long story short, um, you know, we're 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 on very solid footing, and and uh, we will be for many years to come. Last question, Mark Chipman. True North 2020 initiative for Bell MTS Place. You've done all kinds of renovations in recent years. The arena looks fabulous. What's on the agenda this summer for Bell MTS Place? You know what? We're actually going to dial it back a little bit this summer. Uh, we we had some plans to do uh, a bunch more work uh, in the public spaces, but uh, frankly, due to the playoff run, um, we just the, the the time frame in which to do it uh, just got too compressed. So um, a bunch of work is going to get pushed back. And unfortunately, when we do these projects, we only, really only have a few months to do them in the off-season. And the work we had scheduled for this, uh, this summer was just too extensive to get done, um, like starting now. So uh, the next thing people will see will just be more, uh, more public amenity space that are, will be improved and upgraded. Some of the other things that are on the, on the books to do are, are not things like uh, that people would necessarily see that are more, uh, you know, at ice level functioning things for for staff and players, etc. Mark Chipman, thank you for this time and uh, thank you for your access. And once again, congratulations on, uh, I know it still stings on this side. I can only imagine how it stings for you as uh, one of the principals here. We appreciate uh, everything you've done. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, really appreciate you having me on. Mark Chipman, chairman of True North Sports and Entertainment, and we appreciate what you and the Winnipeg Jets have done for the city. What an incredible run it was. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Wednesday morning, and it's time for a little psychology and the city, Dr. Raymond Abdul-Rahman. I don't, did I do better? That's awesome. Hey, we've been practicing wow. for a month now. So. <laughs> Can I try? Yeah. It's uh, Abdul-Rahman. We, we got it right off the air. Oh, yeah. Hang on a second. Yeah. I got to get this because it's not the, the hard eight. Abdul-Rahman. Yeah, that's pretty good, guys. Is that, that's better? Yeah. It's better? More of a <laughs> that's versus a... <laughs> That's right. Now, is it appropriate for me to wish you a happy Ramadan? Is it a celebration or an observance? It's uh, very appropriate. It is both a celebration and an observance. Yeah. Well, so happy Ramadan Thank to you. you. Very where much. where are we in the we're in about, we're halfway about a, through? About a third of the way through. Not not I was totally. trying to help you along. Yeah, there. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been nice. Yes, let's say that. Let's say half. <laughs> <laughs> Can you trick yourself with that? Probably not, right? Not, is it yeah. exactly 30 days? It's exactly 30 days. And so for those that are unfamiliar, can you give us the yeah. the, the 30 second 30 or 45 second tutorial on yeah, Ramadan? I, I call it ninja training <laughs> because it's the it's uh, basically no food or water. It's being mindful about your needs, uh, being managing your mood, like your your temper and all those things. Um, as a means to develop a sense of control over yourself, but it's also meant to develop a sense of empathy for those who don't have. So at the end of the month is a celebration of charity, Eid al-Fitr, where we give charity. Uh, so the idea here is that you gain an empathy with other human beings who won't have, who are not always, always as privileged. No food or water, period? From sunrise to sunset. Okay. Yeah, if it was for the entire 30 days, I'd be dead. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <And> it, <laughs> that can't be no, good. No, it, it's kind of like a, like a, it's a, it's like an, a, it's like a detox on steroids kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of deprivation there. But uh, we're always so happy to have you in the studio. I noticed you've brought some some clouds and some uh, different sort of stick figures here. Maybe yeah. I shouldn't even be touching you can those. Can totally touch those. Can I touch them? Yeah. What, what have you got? So uh, my team and I uh, are going to be at the teddy bears picnic. This is going to be the second time ever that we're going to be addressing mental health. Uh, at the teddy bears picnic, we are going to be running the worry bear tent. So the idea here is basically we are talking about mental health with young people at a very early age to get people to be more aware of mental health, but also give them the tools at an early age on how to manage things like worry and anxiety. So what we have here are our little worry clouds, and it's a little narrative that we teach the little kids that every one of us has a worry cloud. Sometimes they are bigger, and sometimes they are smaller. And these little worry clouds basically usually get us to think, well, I call them what-if clouds sometimes. They make us think of a lot of thoughts like, what if this, and what if that, and what if this, and what if that? And they usually get us to avoid the things that make us anxious. And the more we avoid, the bigger the clouds get. So they feed off our worry. And so the idea here is that, uh, you know, the little people that come to our tent, their teddy bears and their families, the idea here is to get them to do the opposite of their worries. So to avoid the avoidance. And the more we do the opposite, the more it frustrates the worried cloud at the beginning. And sometimes it doesn't feel right. But the more we keep doing it, they eventually start to shrink into these tiny little worry clouds and they become a lot more manageable. It's for the 32nd annual Teddy Bears Picnic, which is happening this Sunday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Assiniboine Park, and it's for the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. How important is it that the, the Worry Bear tent is going to be right next to the Dr. Good Bear tent? Yeah, it's super critical. I think um, the Children's Hospital Foundation did us a super awesome favor. Actually, they did society a super awesome favor. Uh, by moving the Worry Bear tent right up next to the Dr. Goodbear tent. And that was a very strong statement to make it very clear that mental health is just as important as physical health. Um, they've been very kind with us, and they've made this very clear statement. There are going to be people listening this morning, Raymond, mm -hmm. who are going to say, you're just planting seeds. You're planting seeds of doubt in our children's minds. They don't think about these things. And by talking about mental health awareness for younger people, you're creating problems that don't exist. So the research actually shows that uh, up to 70% of mental health difficulties in adults started in childhood. And there are times where we will see a clinical level of problems with children, like a real big problems. And there's other times they're just smaller things. But what we find when we're working with kids is that when we work on things earlier, it actually helps prevent problems. Which is why this is a thing for everybody, right? You show up, you learn the tools, and you learn how to manage, at very least, stress. Um, the thing about anxiety with children is that children, children aren't always at that stage where they can articulate their worry as an actual thought. You know, uh, any parent listening will say they've probably had a child at some point in time saying, I don't want to go to school and I feel sick. And they're not really sick. Right? But they'll say, you know, my stomach hurts, my head hurts, I really don't want to go, I don't feel well. And that not feeling well, that's not physical, is usually an anxiety-based problem. You know, that they've had some difficulties there, they haven't done their homework, they might be bullied. There could be a lot of reasons why children don't show up at school. 
Uh, school avoidance is a very big problem, but they can't articulate that. What they can tell you is that they don't feel well. And so we're not really planting seeds as much as we're clarifying their thoughts and giving them the language to articulate that. And um, we have, we've come up with this narrative of these worry clouds um, that gives children a language that's age appropriate to talk about their worry. I, I think it works well for adults too, but, um, but it gives them the language to talk about something that they're already struggling with. And, you know, you guys have heard me talk about this, the architecture of thought, you know. Um, if we start to create this language earlier on, um, then we prevent the problems down the road, right? We're building that kind of skill set earlier on. So there's this architecture builds that people know what to do down the road. Adults have that same problem as well, though, Absolutely. articulating our feelings and trying to dissect them yeah. from the from the inside out or or that inward reflection of what we're dealing with. It's Absolutely. sometimes very difficult to put into words how you're feeling. Absolutely. But we have a greater capability of that. You know, and stigma and, you know, societal difficulties might keep us in place. Like, and we've talked about men and mental health. Um, you notice one of the worry clouds here has uh, big muscles and a tattoo that says mom. It's uh, my ode to, to boys and men. I did actually. Um, but, but so there are those things that keep us in place, but we do have a great, like cognitively, psychologically, neurologically, we have that capability. Children are just going through that developmental phase and giving them this tool and this language doesn't add thoughts to them, but it helps clarify their thought. So for parents listening when they're, I mean, because I... I pulled that crap a couple of times in school where I didn't want to go to school and I it wasn't because I wasn't sick. I just didn't want to go. Yep. Uh, and I was told to suck it up. You're not sick. You know, they tried took my temperature and all that yeah. stuff. You're not sick. Go to school. Yeah. So what should parents do when their child says that they aren't feeling well and that yeah. they don't want to go to school? So in short, avoid avoidance. So it's more about, how, you know, in short, it's better if we find a way to get the child to school. But the question is, how do we get the child to school? So we've developed a free resource if people go online and they Google worry shrinker, it shows up as the first search. Uh, so, or clinicpsychology.com slash worry shrinker, but just Google worry shrinker and you'll find it. And it's a list of five tips. And each tip has got um, a full explanation on how to talk to children about anxiety, um, including normalizing it, giving them the tools on how to cope with it. So they're not just going back to school without the tools or unequipped, we teach them the tools so that they understand, you know, that anxiety is normal and this is how they manage it. And so when they get there, they feel better about being there. They don't feel like they're not resourced uh, to manage the problems when they're there. And I can uh, confirm for you that if you Google worry shrinker, it is the very first search that comes up on Google worry shrinker hyphen clinic psychology. Psychology in the City is the name of the segment. Our guest is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. <laughs> we get ourselves so worked up about this because we can say it off the air and then we come on the air and we choke. Abdurrahman. Do I get a grade on that one? Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. There's an anxiety in this. We can talk about that. <laughs> Maybe we should <laughs> yeah. after we check traffic and weather. Performance anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you'd better go in disguise. For every bear that ever there was will gather there for certain, because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. <laughs> every teddy well done, Jerry. Where did you find that? In my stash. In his stash, he wow. says. Wow. <laughs> 
for you, Jerry. Uh, we're talking about the teddy bear's picnic because this Sunday, Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman, psychologist with Clinic Psychology Manitoba, and his team will be in the Worry Bear tent uh, right next to the Dr. Good Bear tent. It's at Assiniboine Park, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. in support of Children's Hospital Foundation. And Raymond... Uh, one of the things that I, I kind of want to just sidetrack for a second, mm-hmm. because before we uh, check traffic and weather, I, I mispronounced your name, even though I've been practicing it, and and uh, I've got all sorts of anxiety about getting it wrong, because now that yeah. I know how to say it, I feel like there's no excuse, but it's, you know, it's it's pronunciation that I'm not, that I have a hard time with. Um Am I am I insulting you when I get it wrong? Not at all. Like I mean, what's important, as I said to you, is that you're trying. Yeah. Um, you know, any time we try to make a shift in society, there's always going to be this period of transition. And the point here is that people are trying and making an effort. So you guys doing this, you know, it's a pioneer effort. And soon enough, everybody will be able to say Abdurrahman. So you just uh, sound like a proper Arab saying. <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost like you were born with that name. It's almost. It's yeah. almost like yeah. it, and you grew up with it. So the 32nd annual Teddy Bears Picnic yeah. coming up on Sunday. Uh, based on the forecast right now, we will not need winter clothing, toques, mitts, maybe not even a rain jacket. The more people that come out to this event, the better. The more conversations we have, the better to bring these Topics of conversation that parents themselves are difficult yes. in having not only with themselves and one another, but certainly with their kids. No Absolutely. parent wants to imagine that their child is dealing with an anxiety disorder or any sort of issue yeah. like this. Why is it so important that, that that parents put that aside and put their kids' well-being first and foremost? Well, I, let's... Take a step back for a second. I mean, I think we're talking about health. And that again, that's the reason why we're right next to the Dr. Right. Goodbear we're tent. Trying right? to, like, we're trying is, to, to this is just, break down the division, yeah, right, between right. mental health and physical health. They're one and the same. Absolutely. This is, this is just health. And so when we think about it, like people often think about mental health like people are crazy. And that's just not how it works, right? It's like... It's, and it's not an us versus them. It's like those poor people with a mental illness and us who don't have it. Not true. It doesn't work. One in four people have a bona fide diagnosable anxiety disorder. But, it, but at, that's at any given point in time of a year. Like if we actually think about our experiences, almost all of us have experienced panic. Almost all of us have experienced very severe anxiety. So if we take that over the course of our lifespan. Most of us have experienced anxiety at some point in time. And this is about trying to manage a part of our health because those are our feelings. It's tied to our brain. Therefore, it's a part of our health. So the reason why everybody needs to be attending this and learning about this is because it helps prevent aspects of poor health. Um, you know, it's like you don't need to have diabetes to learn how to, to exercise and to take care of better eating. You know, you don't want to get to that point before you actually start to work on it. We know we're talking about health promotion and public health stuff. Everybody talks about health and how to manage good health. You don't have to have an illness to develop that. And that's the same thing that goes for mental health and anxiety disorders as well, too. We just find ways to manage it. Got about a minute left here. You have a variety of social media platforms that you're very active on. Uh, How about you give those a plug? Um, well, for this one, I want people to go to this worry shrinker thing. We'll be giving out little cards that people will actually walk away from. So parents have a takeaway. There'll be little mini um, worry clouds that they can walk out with the teddy bears. Social media, uh, our team is uh, win, at WinLove, uh, or win, win Love, I think, at WinLove Win or something like that. WinLove, Winnipeg Love is uh, is out there. Clinic Psychology is also our 
uh, clinic as well too, Clinic Psychology Manitoba. All right, and we're going to get uh, we're going to pose. Uh, with some of the worry clouds here, and you'll be able to find those on social media. I'll put mine up for sure uh, on Instagram at Brett McGarry. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman, psychologist with Clinic Psychology Manitoba. Thank you once again for the visit. Thank you for having me. We told you about the Teddy Bears picnic, which is happening this Sunday for Children's Hospital Foundation, and our friend Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman is going to be there with his team from Clinic Psychology at the Worry Bear tent. But we alluded to an event happening Saturday, and that's actually going to happen right next door to where we are. Last year was quite the sight. I'd heard about it, I'd reported on it, but I'd never seen the thunderous cavalcade of motorcycles as they <laughs> rode out just one after another after another. It was incredible what was going on, Greg. Well, it's an absolutely accurate depiction and a wonderful radio picture you're painting with your words there, Brett. Over 50. 1,500 motorcycle riders will embark from Earl's at Polo Park, uh, 10 a.m. It's the annual motorcycle ride for Dad, and the incredible amount of money that's raised and the awareness may be as important as the money raised for prostate cancer here in our province. We have one of the principals in studio right now. We're waiting on another. Mo Sabrin is president of the Winnipeg Police Association, been in... in involved in this event for many years from the beginning, Mo? Yeah, absolutely. It uh, it was the Winnipeg Police Association that spearheaded the uh, the whole event. I was a director at the time. I was a bike rider. I had a very good friend afflicted by prostate cancer, and I thought it was a fantastic fit for the police association to take on the endeavor. Your friend who was afflicted with prostate cancer, can I ask what happened? Absolutely. He's uh, he's healthy. He's been cancer-free for close to 11 years. That is Ed Johnner. He's typically our spokesperson. He's on our committee, and uh, I have to say that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I got involved. His father was diagnosed as well, um, so, you know, it, it uh, touches me uh, near and dear, and and quite honestly, one in seven men is going to come down with this terrible disease. And there's 800,000 men in Canada that have the disease, but they don't know it. And that's, uh, that's the biggest part is the early detection because it is 95% treatable if caught early enough. Is that the scariest of all the numbers, Mo, is the fact that there are close to a million men walking around with this disease and do not know it? I think so. It, it is. I don't think it's... Uh, the numbers for any other cancers, and, it, and all the cancers are, are terrible, terrible diseases, and nobody should have to suffer through the treatment and so on and so forth. But um, th- that is very startling to me that 800,000 men in Canada don't know they have prostate cancer. Well, Mo, I, uh, and I, I've mentioned this in the air before, I haven't been all that shy about it. Uh, it's been a few weeks now, actually maybe even a couple of months really, where I could tell something was going on. Uh, with my prostate. I've had prostatitis before, mm-hmm. um, but especially with Greg and I are going to be there on Saturday, I thought, you know, so it's already top of mind for me. I thought I better go get it checked out. Turns out it's just prostatitis, but I could I could tell what was going on, but maybe for guys who don't know what the early warning signs, you mentioned early detection is, is crucial. Mm-hmm. What Do you know what the symptoms might be for prostate cancer? Well, uh, I think typically uh, one of the biggest is uh, having difficulty urinating. Constant urinating um, is is likely the uh, the most common. Uh, a lot of men will go to their doctor with no symptoms, 
Uh, they'll have the simple blood test, the PSA. They'll have the uh, physical exam. And uh, that's when it is determined that uh, the, the, the man has uh, prostate cancer. So uh, that's why it's so important to go to your doctor because you're not always going to experience symptoms. We have another guest here. I'm just going to bring him in now. <laughs> Brett's uh, going live radio on us. And, and uh, you know, Mo, as we have this discussion here and we uh, welcome uh, Kirk Van Alstein into the uh, studio. He's a retired police officer and obviously a huge uh, member of what's going on here. He is the co-chair. Uh, this conversation is difficult sometimes for dudes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think pride gets the better of us, and uh, and, and for anything, you know, you might have a, an ache or a pain somewhere, and uh, it typically takes uh, my better half uh, to say, "Listen, why don't you go get that checked out? Stop being stupid." <laughs> right? So, and it's the same thing, especially with prostate cancer, because everybody knows the. The rectal exam is not the uh, most fun thing in the world, but uh, it is something that uh, needs to be done. Well, and you, both of you guys rolled up here on bikes. Uh, Mo Sabrin was the, the first to get here, and we've just been joined, as uh, Greg mentioned, by Kirk Van Alstein. And I look over, and I see you're wearing a uh, rather tough-looking vest, and you've got a hat with a skull on it. And you don't look like the kind of guy who would would be, would be go to the doctor to be checked out. You look like your typical macho dude. So what got you involved it, in uh, the ride for Dad? It took me a while, but uh, I lost two uncles and uh, my grandfather to the disease. But uh, just like Mo said, it's the stigma going in and uh, getting checked and uh, the manly part of it. But the wonderful spinoff of uh, going in to get checked is also just getting checked for everything. I mean, you don't usually go in to see the doctor just for a prostate exam, so you're usually getting a full physical. So that's always a good uh, spinoff of that. Yeah, that's something I think that we need to all make a pledge to put into our calendars as an annual thing is to book uh, an exam. I went for physical just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it was something I was concerned about, of course, right, that took Mm -hmm. me in. And my doctor said, you know, you haven't been here for a physical for almost three years now. And that's just, that's unacceptable, right? I'm a father. I want to be around for a long time. And we have to pay more attention to our health. Yes, very, very correct. Um, And Mo might have mentioned it, but, you know, the sooner we get this done, the better it is because early detection is very much the key. And, uh, you know, 90% of this can uh, be cured or resolved or... uh, you know, kept under under wraps if you get in there quick. But if you give it that three-year window every time, you may not be able to do that. And, about- and definitely improve quality of life. Treat it early. Manitoba Motorcycle Ride for Dad. It's happening this Saturday starting at 10 a.m. at Earl's Polo Park. There will be over 1,500 riders. And we'll get more details on how one can register from our guests, Mo Sabrin, president of the Winnipeg Police Association and co-chair of Ride for Dad Manitoba, along with Kirk Van Alstein, retired police officer and co-chair as well. They've raised so far $1.85 million for prostate cancer research and education, just a Herculean effort. And Mo, how does one register? If one wants to get involved in this and wants to be a part of the ride, how do they do that? Uh, rideforDad.ca slash Manitoba. Uh, you can register online. We prefer that. Uh, if you prefer the old school, you can show up on Thursday or Friday, which is our pre-registration. And we're, we're really trying to promote that this year because our, our lineups on Saturday were so huge. 
uh, last year. Um, if you show up uh, Thursday and Friday, you can register, get your rider package. So all you have to do on Saturday is just show up and be staged for the parade. Um, if you uh, are a rider, uh, even if you're not a rider, you can um, collect pledges by going on the website and registering as a champion as well. Kirk, where does the where's the ride go? What, what does the day consist of once you leave the Pol- the Polo Park parking lot? Well, we have a uh, police escort uh, out to the downs, which is quite amazing. Uh, the uh, following we have uh, on the uh, curbs and everything gets bigger every year. It's like a summertime Santa Claus parade. After that, we head up to Gimli. Uh, there's a poker stop in Selkirk at the rec center, and Gimli is lunch at the Lakeview Hotel. And then on the way back, we uh, stop at the Half Moon for another poker stop, and then we uh, do a wind-up at Canad Inn's uh, Windsor Park. And what is the, the most, the highest number of bikes you've had participate in any of these races, do you, or rides, do you remember? Yeah, last year was uh, 1,510. And uh, co- coincidentally, it's the, the highest amount of money that was raised this year was, uh, or sorry, the proceeds from last year was 355000 uh, The year before was uh, three twenty five. So we've seen a steady increase every year. And it's, and, it, and it's really due to the participants getting out there, gathering pledges, and the citizens of Winnipeg and Manitoba digging deep into their pockets to support such a fantastic cause. Well, I can say that I remember with ease the second annual, and now we're at the 10th annual. This is growing uh, by the year. So happy to see it. Uh, Shout out to TELUS for uh, sponsoring this event. Uh, You can't do these things without sponsors. Absolutely. They have been absolutely fantastic in supporting not only our ride, but the other 32 that... Uh, happen across Canada. Um, they are uh, very active in charitable endeavors. Uh, just, I believe it was last year, they established their uh, community um, charities board um, that we were invited to, and we were uh, so happy to be invited and, and very proud to be there on behalf of Ride for Dad. And I also see that uh, you have some celebrity captains as well. We don't need to go through the whole list, but there's a couple here that certainly uh, jump out, considering we're the, uh, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers here, former bomber greats Doug Brown and uh, Abby Kahn will be in the celebrity ride captains. Mackling, are you part of the celebrity ride? No, no, no. Not at all. I'm not a celebrity, so I don't count. <laughs> I haven't been invited, and uh, plus, I don't think they want me on my uh, on my mountain bike anyway. Yeah, so. I was. I would have brought a tricycle for me. Gentlemen, this is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you for all the energy that you put into this. Uh, it's obviously turning up in big numbers in terms of registrants and participants, but maybe more importantly, the awareness and the effectiveness uh, that is generated. Is is measurable and and you mentioned off the air that this has been measurable in terms of the difference uh here in manitoba Mm -hmm. for people to uh, get checked out yes absolutely um when uh, i think it was about year five or six uh, we did a survey uh, of participants and anybody that was a pledge uh, uh, donator um, if they, as a result of uh, Motorcycle Ride for Dad, had been checked for prostate cancer. And, and we were up around 65% of those people um, had uh, been checked afterwards. And I believe that number still continues to grow. And, and we're quite proud of the fact that the national average is about 50% of the participants. So um, I, I think we're doing something right. 
And uh, we're hoping to continue this for quite some time. RideforDad.ca slash Manitoba is the website. It's the 10th annual Ride for Dad this Saturday, starting at Earl's Polo Park at 10 a.m. Our guests are Mo Sabrin, Kirk Van Alstyne, co-chairs of the event, Mo, president of the Winnipeg Police Association, and Kirk, retired police officer. Gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. This is sort of one of those selfish segments on our show. I'm Greg, he's Brett where we continue to try and culture ourselves. And and maybe we'll drag some of you along for the ride, or maybe some of you don't need to be educated on on things like the ballet, but we're doing our best to educate one another and ourselves. So uh, welcome along for the ride on this Wednesday morning, 9.36, and looking forward to a gorgeous day. But so many events going on in our community. We just told you about two back-to-back. We're going to tell you about a third here. We're going to make it a trifecta, so to speak. That's right. Starting tomorrow, it runs tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday at the John Hirsch main stage of the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. RWB School presents Coppelia, a comedy of mistaken identity. And to tell us about this, we have in studio with us the RWB School director, Arlene Minkhorst. Arlene, good morning to you. Good morning. Did I say that right? Coppelia? You said it absolutely correctly. Yes. So can you give us a little bit of a of a review or tell us a little bit about this story that if we are so inclined to come and see this production, what, what's the story being told here? All right. So Coppelia is a comedic ballet and there's not a lot of comedic ballets. It's a full length ballet, has three acts. And um, it's a funny story about a, a doll maker. He makes mechanical life-size dolls. His character is named Dr. Coppelius. Um, there's a heroine whose name is Swan Hilda. And there's her fiancé named Franz. And in the story, um, Dr. Coppelius makes this beautiful doll named Coppelia. He longs for her to be real. Franz is a little bit of a a fickle uh, fiancé where he has a wandering eye. And he thinks that the beautiful doll is real and sort of starts to flirt with her. Oh, my. And Swanhilda is the wisest character in the ballet recognizes the folly of the two men and sort of plays some tricks on them to bring them back to reality. Yeah, this uh, Franz, uh, he doesn't sound like he's a very good fiancé. <laughs> In the end, he turns out to be pretty cool. Okay, well, that's good to know. So this is a production of the uh, of the school, of the RWB school. So tell us a little bit about who will be participating and, and performing, Arlene. So these are our professional division students. They come to us from all over Canada and around the world, and they live in Winnipeg and study with us full-time. And this is the end-of-their-year performance where they are challenged uh, both technically and artistically. In this ballet, they have to learn how to act as well. And we put them on stage so that they can take their next steps in learning to be performers and uh, artists on stage, communicating with an audience. You can't learn that in the studio. You have to do it on stage. And so it's their um, sort of pinnacle of the year where they really develop their skills as performers. You say, oh, sorry, Brett, go ahead. I was just going to say, what you say they can't learn it in the studio. It has to be learned on stage. Why is that? Well, because you, you have to communicate. So you can, we can teach them what mime to do and what the story is and how to do it. But until you get on stage and you start to communicate with an audience, you don't bring it out of yourself And you can't do it just for yourself. Um, There's a thing called studio dancers, dancers who are great technicians who can do the steps really, really well, but don't actually communicate well with an audience. 
And uh, it's our goal, um, because the Royal Winnipeg Ballet has been known for being excellent communicators, to really continue that tradition and give our young people the experience to learn how to engage an audience and excite them. So is that the part that uh, some of us miss, uh, the complexity of what it is that you do? It's not just the technical form of dancing and making it look effortless. We were discussing uh, before we came on air about what great athletes these dancers are, but you may mention that there's another component to this that we might not always realize is an element of dance. Absolutely. I think if um, an audience member goes to the theatre, they can see beautiful dance, but sometimes they're not moved. And when a, when an artist is really successful, they've been able to reach out and touch an audience member and either inspire or bring out certain emotions or um, transform them or transport them to a really place where they're totally focused and engaged. And that happens through experience and talent. You have to have the talent to do it too, but you have to learn how to do that and how to feel comfortable doing that. Well, not only that, but if you're an athlete, a high-performance athlete, say, for example, a football player at the peak physical condition, uh, someone who would, well, it doesn't take much to put me and Greg to shame uh, physically, but uh, when you're out in the field, you don't care what you look like. You're just out to, you know, out for blood, so to speak. But when you go see the ballet, you see these dancers who are in amazing physical, physical condition, but they don't look like they're they don't look like there's any effort because they're having to do something else. What is that? Yeah, and that's that's what we're doing. We have to act and we have to tell a story, especially in a ballet like this. So there's there's um, you can't show that you're physically tired. You can't show that you're breathing hard. You have to learn how to breathe in a certain way so that um, you can have the stamina and the strength that you need, but it make it look effortless and get into your character and tell the story. And in a ballet like Coppelia, there's lots of mime. So there's actual um, coaching with the students on how to do the mime, how to say the, the things. Um, each gesture means something. So for those that might be listening, and we still haven't quite convinced them that this is something maybe that they should try out. For people who are uninitiated and not been to a ballet, what is it about it that you feel inspires audiences to not only come once, but to maybe even fall in love with this art form? Well, you know what? Dance speaks to everybody in different ways, and different people are moved by different kinds of art. So I'm never going to say, you know, everybody is going to love everything. But I think a ballet like this is a very good, what we call, entry-level ballet, because the story is easy to understand. The characters are are very relatable, too. You can relate to what the story is going on. Um, there's humor in it. Um, it's engaging. And you see some very talented young people. I think it's an excellent uh, production to take children to. So if you're wanting to not spend so much money and take a young person to uh, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, but you want to ex- expose them to uh, dance, this is an excellent opportunity. Tickets are very reasonable. And uh, we're used to having children in the audience. And if they make a bit of fuss, nobody minds. <laughs> That's nice. And there's someone, I understand there's somebody special playing the role of Dr. Coppelius. Absolutely. We're very, very fortunate to have Alexander Gamayunov, who was a former soloist with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, perform the role of uh, Dr. Coppelius for the three evening performances. One of our students is doing the Saturday matinee. And um, there's many um, fans of Alexander in the city. They used to come to the Royal Winnipeg Ballet Company to see him perform. 
Uh, he's on our faculty now as a teacher, but we brought him out of retirement to do this role. He's wonderful in it, and I think uh, it's a really great experience for our students to be able to work with such a professional as well. Well, you've got an outstanding venue as well for this show. Uh, where is it, and how can folks get tickets? Right, so we're at the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre at the John Hirsch Main Stage, which is a big stage for us and, and a lovely theatre. Uh, we're there Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening, and Saturday matinee, and you can get t- tickets at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet box office. RWB School presents Coppelia, a comedy of mistaken identity. Again, this is happening tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday, two shows on the Saturday at the John Hirsch main stage of the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. And we've been speaking with the RWB School Director, Arlene Minkhorst, live on 680 CJOB. Arlene, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I'm Brett, he's Greg, behind the glass, Jerry, and Tristan Field-Jones in for Chanelie today on 680 CJOB. <laughs>